Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And last week there were news reports that the Afghan province Uruzgan, where Australian troops served for about a decade, could be the first to return to Taliban control. This is as foreign militaries withdraw from that country by September 11 this year, which is the timeline the US president has set. The Australian embassy in Kabul is already closed and final arrangements are being made now for the return of all Australian personnel. Writer and academic, forever to be introduced as a former breakfaster on this radio station, Jeff Sparrow has been paying attention to this and wondering what it tells us about Australia's military influence and potential contribution to future conflicts. And it's good to have you back, Jeff. It's been a little while. How are you going? Oh, I'm going well. Hello, great finders. How are you both? Going good, good too. Yeah, we're sort of really smiley in here. Um, we've got the perspex between us. We've got our <laughs> masks off <laughs> so we can speak. <laughs> Nothing makes you smile like having some perfect between you. I know, it's hilarious. Um, A little glimpse behind the curtain at the grapevine about how the two hosts actually feel about each other. That's revealing, let me tell you. You know what? Look, we have a bigger conflict here to talk about, Jeff, than um, anything that goes on behind the scenes here at Triple R. But yeah, you know, to the to the topic. um, I mean, what what I'm hearing the Australian Defence Force sort of saying at the moment is that the withdrawal from Afghanistan about it is that the resolution to the conflict will not be resolved militarily. I mean, what does this mean, do you think? Yeah, I think the Taliban might have other ideas about that. So in the last 24 hours, um, the insurgency, the Taliban, has seized control of another 17 districts in eight of the provinces of Afghanistan. It it seems increasingly likely that they will soon control the majority of the the country, uh, including, as you said, Oregon province, where the Australian forces were stationed. So it looks very much conflict is coming to an end with either a clear Taliban victory or perhaps... And from this, from the Australian American point of view, this is probably the, you know, the, the the best option. Some sort of coalition between the Taliban and the the, the current government. But very clearly, this, the security situation in the country is um, is falling apart. And um, you know, it seems to me it's kind of extraordinary that we have a situation here where. You know, this is the longest war that either Australia or the United States has been involved in. It's about to come to an end with a pretty clear victory for the people that we were fighting against. And there's almost no discussion of it in Australia. It seems to be quite extraordinary. Can you just remind us, Jeff, about the rationale for Australian troops heading to Afghanistan in the first place? And I guess the extent to which there was a single motive, um, at least that they communicated to the Australian people when troops were sent over there. Yeah, look, I think this is a really important question because, of course, in a democratic country today, it's very hard to launch a war without at least passive support from the majority of the population. So what we tend to see, it's each new war begins with the government promising that it won't be like the last war. So, you know, you think of the Gulf War in 1991, the first George Bush promises, this isn't going to be like Vietnam, this is different. And when Iraq, when, when Afghanistan and also Iraq 
um, happen after 9-11. In both cases, there's a promise. This isn't going to be like the first Gulf War. This is different. These are conflicts that are going to be fought for, for morality and for human rights. And the rhetoric around the invasion of Iraq uh, was partly that this was a conflict to prevent terrorism, but also that this was... Um, struggle that was going to liberate the people of Afghanistan. So, you know, we had people like Piers Ackerman in The Telegraph explaining just simply that this was a long overdue fight against evil. As clearly as that, Australia was going to Afghanistan to fight against evil. And we had Laura Bush saying that it was a war to liberate, um, to liberate uh, the women of Afghanistan. And so just a couple of days ago, Hamid Karzai, the former um, leader of Afghanistan, gave an interview with Associated Press where he said that uh, the international community came here 20 years ago with a clear objective of fighting extremism and bringing stability, but extremism is the highest point today, so they have failed. Um, the legacy is a war over nation in total disgrace and disaster. So that's the, con- that's the, the, the contrast between what was promised and what was delivered. So again, there's this extraordinary difference between the reason we were told this war was going to be fought and what has actually happened. And bear in mind, of course, Australia has spent um, billions of dollars on Afghanistan. I think the um, current figure is $10 billion. I mean, and that's nothing compared to the US expenditure, which is $2 trillion. Um, You know, the war has now cost 241,000 lives. And, of course, the Australian debt is a very small fraction of that. Some 41 Australian service people have died in Afghanistan. But 41 deaths is 41 deaths. And you think that there should be some accountancy of how this has gone so catastrophically wrong. But, you know, you look at the media and it's cricket. Mm. It's true. And I wonder, Jeff, I mean, the way you describe it, and I know, I mean, I've, I've read those facts that you've put forward in, in other places and things like that, but I wonder whether if the media did explain it more as, as you just have, um, I can't imagine those, you know, authorities explaining it like that, but do we want to hear it, do you think, as a, as a public? Yeah, well, I think part of... Um Part of what's happened, of course, is it became very clear that the um, that the, the, the rhetoric about um, about liberation and about women's rights and, and so on um, was never held very seriously by the people in charge of the war. That was, you know, strictly for the rubes. And you know, after about a year or so, we didn't. That rhetoric was kind of um, dropped. So bear in mind that where Australia was was active in Oruzgan province, the Australian troops were, were working very closely with uh, a local warlord who was a notorious uh, human rights abuser that was, you know, Australia's partner in that region, a, um, a guy called, um, called Matala Khan, you know, you know, Human Rights Watch said that this guy's got a record of torture and human rights abuse. That was our partner in the region. So it's not very surprising that <laughs> that this intervention didn't deliver the, 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 the supposed liberation that it was supposed to bring. But it's also worth pointing out that, you know, in, in the decades that Australia was in Afghanistan, as I said, the longest war in Australian military history, that if you read between the lines, you found all sorts of people who just said, look, you know, the, the supposed justification of this war 
was just out and out bullshit. So Clive Williams, who people probably know, is a you know fairly well known um, expert on international relations, was saying a decade or so. Australia's stated reason for being in Afghanistan is counting terrorism. The real reason is maintaining a close alliance with the US. Mm. In fact, our military presence in Afghanistan is more likely to lead to acts of terrorism in Australia than prevent them. Bear in mind, that was in a column in which he was supporting war. So he said, like, you're being told that this is a war to, 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 to fight terrorism. Actually, it's more likely to make terrorism happen. But what we really need to do is, um, you know, is to, to, to bolster our alliance. Um, with the United States, and that's why we're doing it. And Michelle Grattan made the same argument equally openly. So she said Australia will stay in Afghanistan as long as the Americans want us to, which means as long as the US is there. It's one of those commitments to the alliance. We will do it even though the prospects of victory are probably bleak. So, again, you know, like, from about a decade ago, it was pretty clear that the war was lost, but... We continued because what really mattered was the alliance with the Americans. We're speaking with Jeff Sparrow, author and columnist, and of course, former breakfaster here at Triple R, all about Australia's legacy in Afghanistan as we prepare for a full troop withdrawal by the 11th of September. And Jeff, I was sort of interested to read also about the closure of Australia's embassy, and and I'm wondering what you make of that, given um, I guess what you've just laid out in terms of the really you know shoddy argument put forward for why Australia was in Afghanistan in the first place and, and this idea that we basically just followed the US in there w- without um, you know, sort of much or any appraisal of whether it was actually a good thing to do. Do you think the closure of the embassy has the potential to have broader ramifications, particularly, I guess, for those who have worked with Australian troops in Afghanistan and might potentially be you know, in harm's way as the Taliban takes um, more territory? Yeah, I mean, I think that the fact that Australia's not even going to maintain an embassy there is, is, is testament to um, what the official assessment of the security situation is likely to be. I mean, that that, that says very, very clearly that, that they don't think Kabul is going to be um, secure and will probably fall to the Taliban soon, and they don't want any else uh, to be in harm's way. And as you say, where does that leave all of the people who collaborated with the um, Australians? I think there's currently uh, a a rush to try and get um, passports uh, for some 300 um, translators who worked with the Australian forces. But I would have thought that the number of people who collaborated in some way with the Australian troops is probably uh, considerably greater than that. And all of those people are now in... In, in danger. So the the, the legacy of, uh, of this war is going to be um, well, toxic on all kinds of different levels. But as you say, uh, most particularly for the people who supported the uh, Australian presence, when you know the new regime comes into power, which seems likely to do imminently. So um, yeah, we haven't seen the end of this yet by 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 a long way. And what about Australia's reputation? Jeff, uh, I mean, we had the Brereton report as well, and and as you know, Dylan and, and you just speaking about the you know the criticism that we now risk abandoning local staff and translators and the lights. What are your your thoughts around Australia's reputation in that sort of military sphere? 
Yeah, well, this is another really interesting question, isn't it? Because you would think after a, a catastrophe like this, where, you know, this massive expenditure of resources, you know, multiple um, multiple deaths over decades, you would think that there would be uh, concern in political circles to find out who was responsible to, to draw some conclusions and make sure this um, never happens again. You think there'll be all sorts of inquiries. You think the politicians who are associated with this debacle would be, you know, would have their careers ruined, it would be entirely unelectable. None of that is happening. There is no sense that, um, you know, the military and political leaders responsible for Afghanistan are going to be held to account in any way, shape or form. And that, I think, goes to the point I was making before. Because, from Australia's perspective, the point of the intervention wasn't anything to do with Afghanistan. The point of the intervention, the point of the intervention, was to buttress the relationship with the United States. From that perspective, actually, um, they see the intervention as being a success. And in fact, now the discussion, insofar as there are debates about foreign policy, those debates are all about China and our relationship to China and the likelihood of um, conflicts with China and how they might be managed in the future. Um, not assessing who was responsible for um, Afghanistan, because, as I said, the crucial thing for the political military establishment was, you know, reinforcing the uh, military alliance with the United States. And I think this is the really important point that we shouldn't assume that because this this occupation of Afghanistan has been such a disaster that any lessons will have been drawn in in terms of future wars. And that's clearly not the case. But there's no line being drawn under this that, if anything, the likelihood of conflict with China is um, is now greater than it would have been in the past. There's no sense that because we were engaged in one catastrophic war that's led to nothing but disaster, we should avoid another one. In fact, the opposite conclusion is being drawn. So that 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 um, statement about you know it won't be like the last war. And at least in sort of, you know, base security, um, in a sort of base security sense, I suppose, I mean, the stakes are a whole lot higher for Australia in the event of any armed conflict with China in the future. Do you think there's a sense that we will have learned anything from this experience with Afghanistan in, uh, I guess, uh, you know, playing into whether we, we do engage in that sort of conflict and what kind of justifications are put forward, especially in the context, I suppose, of the way that, you know, China has put the spotlight on um, the Brereton inquiry and, and the actions of Australian forces in Afghanistan, as well as our um, record with you know human rights issues in offshore detention and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, this, is a, this is a really good point because it's often presented as if the United States drags Australia into unwanted wars, and we are the sort of junior partner who's kind of dragooned into fighting in, you know, in, in foreign countries, whether it's um, Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan. But in fact, the way that these things usually play out Australia is far keener than the United States that Australia play a role. And that's because the, the Australian establishment needs American um, support in the Asia-Pacific region. So in terms of relationships... China, if anything, Australia is more hawkish than the United States. So, you know, the, the, the senior echelons of the Australian establishment are worried that the Biden administration might not be hawkish enough. 
So they're very, very concerned that America might pull back from the Asia-Pacific region, leaving Australia um, exposed. And so that's why I think Australia is, in some respects, the front line of, uh, um, of drumming up um, sentiment that, that might um, back an increasingly hawkish policy towards China. And if we think back to the Afghan experience and the way that that conflict was prepared by senior you know, political and media figures adopting the rhetoric of human rights, well, in terms of China, we could expect that any future conflict with China will be prefigured by lots of talk about the rights of the Uyghurs or standing up for the people of Hong Kong or respecting the rights of Taiwan or indeed general democratic principles in China. And while all of those things are indeed good and noble causes, the latest from Afghanistan is that this rhetoric doesn't actually correspond to anything in reality. So all of those years of telling us that Australia was tremendously concerned with what was happening in Oregon province, now that province is about to fall, fall from the Taliban and nobody cares. And so I think, you know, that, that, that's, that's a good basis to, for a degree of cynicism for everything you hear in respect of China. I think that's um, a, a fair point, Jeff Sparrow, and uh, it's good to have you on Triple R. And I'm no doubt we'll be calling you in in about a month's time to talk about Always something else. No yeah. worries. Have a great day. Thanks, Jeff. You too. Cheers, guys. Jeff Sparrow, senior lecturer in journalism over at the University of Melbourne, uh, academic columnist, uh, and uh, regular voice here on the Grapevine. It's Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. The Murraguppan family from Biloela have been in the headlines lately after four-year-old Tanika was flown from Christmas Island, where the family was being held in detention, after falling gravely ill. The family are now all in community ten- detention in Perth, where Immigration Minister Alex Hawke has said they will stay while the case plays out in the federal court as to whether Tanika was denied procedural fairness in her application for a visa. There are very loud calls to allow the family to stay permanently and return to Biloela, where they have strong community support. And the saga has once again raised ethical questions over Australia's refugee and asylum seeker regime. David Mann is Executive Director at Refugee Legal. And to talk about this and other associated issues, he joins us on the line. David, great to have you back on the show. Yeah, great to be back. Morning, David. And so I suppose in one sense, it's good that this particular family is off Christmas Island and now are in, um, I guess, a better situation in Perth, but still no more certainty about um, what the future holds for them. No, not at all, really. I mean, I think the government's decision under huge pressure, um, uh, yeah, really um, a huge groundswell of concern um, across Australia, um, the government effectively uh, agreed to, you know, do a couple of things, really, reunite the family in Perth uh, under community detention um, and to, to, so that Tanika, I guess, could also be close to the medical treatment that she was, she was receiving and will need to receive. Um, but ultimately, what it doesn't do is go to the very heart of their predicament and resolve it, which is, you know, to provide them with an enduring solution, um, which is you know, clearly what their, their situation desperately calls for. So basically, um, they haven't been provided with um, full freedom. They haven't been allowed to go back to uh, their community in Biloela. 
and uh, they haven't been granted permanent stay. So it, it is uh, more uncertainty. Sure, um, it's important that that step of reuniting the family, of course, and there will be a modicum of, of additional freedom uh, in the community, under community detention, but um, it's also full of uncertainty. And uh, the, the bottom line is with the stroke of a ministerial pen, um, the family could have been granted freedom and permanent stay, and that hasn't happened. What about, can we talk about this community of, of Biloela and what an extraordinary story of friendship and community? And I, I wonder, you know, how much support there has been there for that, that family to be reunited with the community. Um, do you think it's this story of Australia we we prefer than the one around rules and process and a harsh regime, David, or I suppose, or does it all sit together? We, we, we want both. We want this kind of story of community and friendship and safety as well as this one of process and, and harshness. Yeah, I, I think it's 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 brought up, it, uh, you know, it's graphically um, brought up a lot of uh, different narratives in the one in the one hit, and but they all converge on one thing, and that is, you know, the, the fundamental questions of humanity um, and uh, and and also of compassion. Um, and I think that what's happened with the Billa Wheeler community embracing um, the family and uh, with them embracing the community. I mean, I think it's um, it, it's it's really in a way it's not a new story. It's actually a, a sort of a, an old story in, in Australia but across the globe um, of people um, becoming part of communities, becoming neighbours, friends, work, you know, you know workmates, um, etc. Um, and, uh, you know, and, um, and schoolmates, you know, school friends and all of the rest of what makes for a life in a community. And, um, and, and, it, and I think a lot of it comes down to um, a, the whole issue comes down to how do we treat people who have um, come here seeking asylum, but also who have become members of a community and neighbours, and uh, in both a literal and broader sense. And uh, so I don't think there's anything new about it. I think that um, what, what's happened is that their, their situation uh, is one that is, has, has obviously um, become so well known in Australia, but it's also epitomised another thing, and that is a real cruelty in the policy a real, you know, that, that underpins the deterrence agenda. And the cruelty lies at its heart in not looking at um, you know, the, the, the human consequence of policy and the relationships that are formed by people and um, is actually destructive of them. Uh, and um, yeah, deterrence policy, which underpins this, actually has no interest in. It is not about the, the well-being or the relationships or the or yeah, a compassionate approach. It's not about the human dignity of anyone involved, um, the family um, and people that they've um, you know, become so close to. It's actually about using the family as human shields to deter others from coming. And, uh, I mean, this whole saga has really shown, I suppose, the incredible resonance of, of a human face being on the refugee and asylum seeker issue. And we know there's a whole lot of secrecy around the government's uh, refugee regime with, you know, boat turnbacks and, and not commenting on activities at sea and the, the whole offshore detention uh, approach where, you know, Australians have very little access to the actual conditions of people that are in detention 
mention in our name, but with, you know, literally these horrific images of a sick four-year-old child, that's something that anybody can relate to on an emotional level. How do you think yeah. this this situation, I mean, does it change, do you think, the the way that the asylum seeker issue is understood and, and engaged with by Australians just by having those, you know, very emotional images uh, on our TV screens and, and our newspapers? Absolutely. I, I think that what it does is it, it brings into sharp focus, into view, um, the human face of the policy. Um, the policy actually tries to keep people out of sight, out of mind and out of rights, and we know that. And, um, and successive governments in prosecuting this deterrence, this extreme deterrence policy, have known it too because they've um, literally um, taken people, they've, they've essentially exiled people as far away from our sight as possible so that we can't see them um, for what they are, and that that is, you know, people with heartbeats, you know, um, and... Uh, human beings and, and, and people in our community. Uh, and so that's why um, we see, you know, people being exiled to Nauru and to Manus. That's why extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily, that this family, um, when they brought their appeal from deportation, were, um, were exiled to Christmas Island, thousands of kilometres away, and uh, at incalculable cost to them, in terms of their their well-being and um, and and rights, but also incalculable cost, or it, it actually is calculable the, the cost to the taxpayer too. But the, 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 why do that? I mean, it makes no sense otherwise, unless one is to to look at the you know the a policy which actually uses people, as I say, as human shields. There's a conscious, calculated cruelty in it, and it actually keeps us tries to keep it out of sight what what's being done to people and why. Well, and this is, I think, one of the really, um, you know, one of the most fundamental things of all. Why? Well, we've seen that when we see um, a photo of Tanaka in distress and um, and very unwell, um, it actually um, it, it it is so deeply moving and distressing um, to the nation. The nation not only flinches; the nation has essentially said, "This can't continue. Um, this is not us." I think, and. Um, and uh, and why? Well, it's, it's you know it goes back to fundamental issues about um, who we are um, and how we treat people. Fundamental uh, questions of, of basic humanity and um, a policy that is actually um, yeah, a policy that is doing terrible destruction um, to, to people within our within our midst. And you know, uh, I mean, even now, and I was so um, relieved, like like um, most people, that um, that uh, Tanaka um, was released from hospital over the weekend, can join her family, and they are in Perth in in community detention. I I guess the idea that the family could be in the community that they know in in Billawilla and and their child going to school in that community where they already have connections and things like that is also a wish of people but that doesn't look like it's going to happen David and I I mean it would be interesting to hear about how the how community detention works not just for this family mm. but but in general do people have choice at all about where they're actually based or what are what what does that mean for people's lives when they're in community detention yeah, well, look, community detention um, is a sort of a legal device to, which um, is one of the ways in which a minister, minister of the day, um, can can again sort of use their, their their sort of the awesome power of their pen to release someone from 
held detention, that is, you know, incarcerated in a detention centre, for example, into the community but under special conditions. And those conditions usually, it's what's called a residence determination where um, there is a sort of a nominated place where the people, yeah, the person or the people, the family have to reside. Uh, and various reporting conditions, etc. Um, and so generally, um, people under the community detention are able to move around freely within, you know, within the sphere of where they're, where, where they're living, where they're, and, um, and uh, you know, to have some modicum of freedom. Um, but community detention also is very restrictive in, in, in a broader sense because it's not the grant of a visa to permanently stay. It's a sort of a holding position, really. Um, it is under quite strict conditions. And, um, and uh, you know, I think here what we see is that it's being used in a way... It's actually being used as a legal device to also, frankly, to keep the family away from Billa Wheeler. Uh, I, you know, I don't think there's any other conclusion. I mean, um, it, you know, it, it can't seriously be said that the only place in Australia where Tanika can get medical treatment is in Perth. I mean, that's not, that's a, obviously a non, that, that's not, um, you know, um, plausible as an argument, nor, nor, nor would it be plausible for the government to, to argue that, um, you know, um, living in Billa Wheeler would, that it would be impossible to access where necessary medical treatment, whether in Billa Wheeler or close by. Do you know what I mean? So it's been used as a device, frankly. Dave, um, sorry to jump in, David, just to remind listeners, we're speaking with David Mann, Executive Director at Refugee Legal, speaking specifically uh, about the plight of the Murugupan family who were based in Billa Wheeler for years and uh, now are in community detention in Perth. And, uh, I mean, the ALP has called for the Minister to use their discretion to allow this family to stay, as I understand it, but that sort of hasn't come with any commitment to fundamentally changing their refugee and asylum seeker policy, which they've, you know, essentially, I suppose, endorsed the coalition's um, way that they've taken up the the, um, the offshore processing that was sort of re-established by the ALP a decade or so ago. Do you imagine, based on sort of what you're hearing, whether we could see any tangible change in the broader approach coming out of this particular case? I, I think that's a really interesting question. I, I don't know. I mean, it's a, obviously we don't. Yeah. Um, time will tell. But I think it's a really interesting question. I do think with um, the, the, the family situation, I think that there has been some kind of shift in Australia. I, when there's a when there's the, this kind of you know um, situation and a potential shift, it's difficult, of course, to know where where it heads because it. De- depends on a lot of things, including whether that groundswell of support and concern um, and call for change really uh, is actually um, embraced in an ongoing way, whether it can gain momentum, become more broad-based, and also, you know, whether, whether um, you know, as you're saying, whether, um, you know, the, the opposition, you know, Labor and and, uh, and, any, and crossbenchers, for example, see the need for change here. But certainly, um, I do think there is the potential for some kind of uh, change because I think again, and that the kind of change that um, you know that, that needs, of course, needs to happen is, is to shift from a position where people, um, where, where there is this sort of um, cruelty, this conscious, calculated cruelty in the policy, um, which is which sort of is able to do such harm to um, far greater safeguards um, around ensuring that people are not treated like this now. Um, whether that's expanding options to exercise humanitarian discretion, um, whether that is, um, you, know, uh, you know, whether whether there are other, um, you know, policy considerations to 
um, I guess, to, to in a way, to, to better reflect um, the the concern, um, the public sentiment, the concern around um, the treatment of people in these circumstances, including even, um, you know, their, their exile to um, Christmas Island and to being locked up. I mean, you know, um, you know, you know, a family being locked up in this way, whether there is some reckoning on, again, the indefinite detention as a policy, these are big questions. Um, yeah, and, and I think one of them is the, the indefinite detention question um, because... Um, you know, we we are um, we're a country, uh, like, you know, in terms of the industrialised world, we're, we're pretty much alone in terms of having a policy and laws um, that, that that lock um, innocent people up indefinitely. You know, uh, and, and David, uh, I mean, COVID has changed so much and it has really, I mean, people call us Fortress Australia or whatever. I mean, it has limited the yeah. number of people being able to come into the country, including Australian citizens and permanent residents and the like who might be overseas at the moment. But mm. And also we're hearing from, from business and from communities around the country that they're, they're crying out for people. And I, I haven't seen that sort of translate through, though, to changing situations with those currently in community detention, those who are seeking asylum or have refugee claims and things like this, it hasn't seemed to translate through to those league, those visas and, and the situation of people already here in Australia. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, Is it likely I mean, to, the, do you think? Do, do you mean likely in the sense of the, the, with, with in, in the sense of a change in... in of of example, policy, temp- yeah, or of, of the kind of visa kinds, because I know there's there's Alex Hawke, who's the Immigration Minister, there's Karen Andrews, the Home Affairs Minister. Like, are we likely to see any change in, in the way that we do things because of COVID and because of the change globally with movements of people and the like? I, I just think it's, I, I think it's really difficult to see where any major... Cha- where any, um, clear intent for major change at the moment. I think a lot of the policy seems to be very stuck uh, in, you know, and again, underpinned by deterrence policy. Um, and um, But this I, idea I that people smugglers and things like this, I mean, do you think that yeah. this this rationale, this sort of rhetoric is, is really less potent now? <laughs> uh, one, I mean, we don't have a, an election right immediately now. I know there'll be one within the next year, but, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm not trying to be a cynic here, but, but do people, mm. when we have hardly anyone coming into the country, this idea of, of um, you know, driving up people smuggler trade again. Do you think it even people even believe it? I, uh, who knows? I mean, it's a great question. Um, and, of course, you know, um, both uh, yeah, the LNP and, and Labor will be looking very carefully at, at what the, the, the public attitudes are at the moment. But the, 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 the real change more recently, of course, you know, in Australia was that, for example, at the last election... Uh, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't. Uh, you know, the, the central issue that it had been in the past. It was of, seemed to get far less attention. The whole border protection and deterrence agenda uh, yeah, issue, and uh, it seemed to have sort of disappeared from the the, the, the sort of central, the centre, one of the centrepieces of um, political contest. And where it's at at the moment, given that we then have had COVID, uh, etc. It's a really interesting question whether COVID has sort of, in a way, um, you know, sort of, in a way, uh, you know, sort of taken over as an issue and related issues around it um, or, or not is a really interesting question. I think one of the interesting questions within it is that, of course, 
um, our, you know, Australia's response to COVID has uh, resulted in another kind of border closure or border fortification, and how that is how that. Uh, plays out in the minds of people um, in relation to refugees and migrants is, um, I think, a really interesting question. I think it's hard to know. But I do think that uh, it doesn't seem to me, um, from what one can tell, that um, there is that, that the politics of fear in relation to asylum and you know, sort of uh, and, and all of the issues you just raised, I don't, doesn't seem to be as prominent and, uh, and doesn't seem to um, have the kind of traction that it has in the past, as far as one can see. Um, but the gov- government, look, I, I think it's quite clear that the government um, uh, have pulled out the old the old position, the old playbook. Uh, they continue to, in response when under pressure, as we saw recently uh, with, the, with the Bill Wheeler family, they continue to try to, um, uh, you know, under pressure to sort of almost claim that the humanitarian high ground and to start to argue that it's all about, you know, the treatment of the family is all about, you know, sort of um, saving lives at sea when, in fact, the policy is destroying lives on land. Mm. So they're, they're still arguing that. And it is uh, Refugee Week this week, David. I know um, organisations um, like your own Refugee Legal and ASRC, um, it's a great time to donate coming up to the end of the financial year as well. There's a lot to, lots of activity happening, but is there any particular focus for you over this week, either in relation to kind of outreach activities or, or just the, the day-to-day work that you do with refugees um, and legal representation? We've got lots of events that we're attending, you know, and sort of speaking at or presenting at or or have set up. But I think um, that the main issue for us is that we continue to roll up our sleeves every day. An amazing um, team here at Refugee Legal um, of uh, of lawyers and non-lawyers and, you know, uh, just basically rolling up our sleeves. We're absolutely inundated with people in desperate need of our help and um, one of the, the latest issues has been uh, the, the, the sort of sudden surge of interviews for people who came by boat over eight years ago seeking protection and have still, over eight years ago, uh, they came and have still not uh, had an interview uh, with, the, with the department about their fears of return and, um, and then all, all of a sudden out of the blue um, after being left in limbo for years, uh, they're suddenly getting these um, two-week notices uh, to attend an interview. And, of course, while the resumption of processing um, is, yeah, of course, um, something that we would always support, um, the problem is not that's not the concern. It's the concern that to do it in this way so suddenly is um, it, it, it really threatens rights because people um, need legal assistance. And so that's what we're doing. We're responding to that as well as many other needs. But people um, need to get legal help. They need um, to understand their rights and uh, and to be able to get a fair hearing. And so the real threat at the moment is that with this sudden surge is that people you know, could well, you know, uh, you know, violate rights and endanger lives if people don't get the legal help. And that's, so that's what we're doing is making sure that as many people as possible get that help. But there are so many other uh, needs, um, you know, of people in the community and in detention that we're responding to. So that's our main focus for the week, as well as, you know, sort of honouring the, you know, really the remarkable, um, just the remarkable, uh, you know, situations that refu- refugees, um, you know, the remarkable courage, the resilience uh, and, uh, and the strength that so many people around the world who are forced to flee, um, you know, uh, 
have and and, and demonstrate and, and in seeking safety. And um, I think the other thing that just would be worth noting is that uh, the UN Refugee Agency have just released their annual figures, and uh, basically um, the numbers of people forced to, to flee globally are on the increase again. Um, uh, this has been the trend. So it's gone from last year. Uh, 79.5 million people forced to flee from their homes to 82.4 million people globally forced to flee, and um, so the trend is is um, is incredibly um, disturbing. Uh, and uh, you know, and so, and I just think it's worth remembering too that you know, so yeah, some of those people are actually here uh, in, in our country seeking protection. And a lot of our daily work is helping them to ensure that they can understand their rights, present their case, and you know, get a fair hearing. And because um, um, in the in the system in Australia, uh, you know, there is um, the, you know, people need legal help. Well, it's, um, that's um, need it. absolutely true. And thank you so much, David. It's great to hear from you. And you've just raised two issues there that we don't have time <laughs> to go into around this yeah. um, this surge that you that you mentioned, and also the numbers um, of people seeking asylum around the world or on the move around the world going up. So we must get you in sooner than later. It's been too long. Um, thanks for being with us in Refugee Week. Yeah, great to be with you both and um, and thanks a lot and um, look forward to chatting again soon. Likewise, uh, David Mann there, Refugee Legal and... Uh and, yeah, have a look out for events that you can participate in this week and lots of, as, as Dylan mentioned, lots of appeals out there to support those in our community, um, many of which have been out of work with the shutdown and things like that as well. So um, please look out for that. Triple. Ah. And we're going to be talking about the right to repair now. And in Australia, if you have a, a, an appliance like a washing machine or even a coffee machine and it breaks, you do not necessarily have the right to repair it yourself. This is also the case for phones and in some cases cars. Sometimes uh, it's only the manufacturer's own technicians who have the parts or knowledge of proprietary software to do the fix. Uh, the Productivity Commission has a paper for submissions out at the moment. It's on the right to repair and it's an area that can Karen Ellis is passionate about. She co-founded Mendit Australia and um, we've asked her to come on to speak about that but also uh, speak about this kind of broader right to repair and it's great to have you with us, Karen. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you, Carly, and thank you, Dylan, for inviting Mendit Australia along to speak about the right to repair. Yeah, no worries. And, I mean, look, not everybody listening is watching what the Productivity Commission's doing and what they're putting out for submission and the like, but this one seemed really interesting um, because it goes to what our rights are already under consumer law um, and then really extends it to say, well, how can we do better to avoid things like e-waste, which are quite big issues um, in Australia? Can you sort of talk about at the moment what our rights are when it comes to repairing items as you know every day as as a phone or a car or a coffee machine and the like well with right to repair there are different understandings what what right to repair is and the productivity commission found this when it uh, did its report and asked for submissions everyone's got a bit of a different idea a lot of people think they already have an inalienable right to repair meaning that uh, you know we can repair whatever we own Um, and as you mentioned Talia that's not necessarily the case 
Um, however, uh, under consumer law, we have quite a number of uh, rights in relation to, to repair. It's quite robust that if uh, something breaks, a product breaks that you bought, that it can be repaired and that that can even override um, a warranty that's uh, you know, expired. So, yeah, uh, inalienable right to repair. Amended um, Australia believes that we just have that. It doesn't matter what laws are in place. If we want to repair something at home, we will. However, that's not necessarily the case because of intellectual property and patents, etc. So, it, it's quite involved. Um, and yeah. And, That's it, it's quite involved. And, and so how hopeful are you, Karen, that through this process there will be some kind of mechanisms in place to make it easier for people to repair things when they break, whether that's in, in relation to, you know, companies having to have spare parts available or um, at least for a period of time when, it, when a particular item comes out. Do you think there will be positive change to come from this current process that's, um, that's ongoing? Well, I'm hopeful because this is what uh, Mended Australia and uh, uh, others are uh, campaigning for, is to have uh, more rights in legislation around uh, right to repair. As I said, we can repair anything at home that we really want to repair or have the expertise to repair, but not everyone is uh, skilled up uh, like Mended Australia. So I'm really hoping for other people uh, that they can, for example, take um, their, their broken products either back to the manufacturer and not have uh, so many issues in relation to getting getting things repaired because it's not quite easy uh, in relation to consumer law that, yes, you may uh, be able to get things repaired, but are the manufacturers going along with that or are they um, having, you know, barriers uh, and have you keep coming back time and time again until you for example. So I'm very hopeful that there will be some changes, but we won't get everything we want. Look, I was going to say no one ever does, but look, go for it anyway, because I think what the issue that you've been, um, you know, you set up an organisation to support people to repair. And I know you travel around to support people in different communities as well. And we'd love to speak to you about that in a second. But um, I wonder if what are the products that are the main issue here? Are they the ones that are electronic? Because I know there's a lot of sort of computers and software involved with really, you know, things like I keep picking coffee machines because I know people spend a lot of money on them and they do go um, break but but also you know mobile devices in in your pocket and all sorts of things cars they all have computers now is that a, a big part of what the issue is here Karen? Yes that's that's basically what the Productivity Commission uh, is looking at more the electronics uh, as, as in our you know phones, our digital devices, and even now in refrigerators with uh, electronics in them, for example. Uh, so it's more related, I think, to, um, or I, I know really, it's more related to e-waste, uh, what, they're, uh, what they're really looking at. However, there are other product um, areas that do need exploring as well, and one that hasn't come up that I'm very passionate about is uh, textiles. It hasn't been mentioned, and uh, that's a whole different uh, different ball game. But uh, uh, mending of our textiles as well. 
And I wonder if you I wonder if you can talk to us about how you got started with Mendit Australia and and the kinds of activities you do in different locations supporting people, you know, repairing um, bits and pieces. Yes, well, Mended Australia actually was born after uh, our local government uh, uh, area said uh, no to uh, setting up a repair cafe. They weren't really interested, and that was back in 2012, and uh, believing that we have this inalienable right to repair uh, um, as uh, as a uh, couple, uh, which is Mended Australia, we uh, set about uh, forming um, Mended Australia and decided to travel around to more progressive municipalities uh, that were uh, keen to uh, set up repair events, repair cafes and uh, fix and mend broken appliances that had textiles that were pretty much ready for uh, the landfill. If, if, if there was no community repair activities happening, these appliances would have definitely gone to landfill or be shredded by the recycler. So it came out of a negative and turned into, into a positive. We weren't going to be stopped from helping people repair their things. Karen Ellis is with us. Mended Australia is the organisation she co-founded. And just to keep you going on Mended Australia, Karen, I was saying at the outset of the program this morning that I just admire thrift so much. The idea that people, something might break or or um, or something and it can be repaired or love can be, your time can be spent on it. But a lot of people don't have those skills. And is that part of what Mended Australia is about, is actually um, transferring knowledge to people that do wish to, to spend some of their precious time restoring something that is is precious or useful to them? Yeah, it's an interesting question Uh, and we certainly believe in uh, sharing skills. However, Repair events aren't really the place. Uh, they are advertised as the place to maybe learn skills, but we don't believe they are the place to actually learn skills. Uh, more that you need to go to workshops. Um, that's the next step. And really the Productivity Commission needs to look at that next step. They've mentioned repair cafes in their report, but uh, you know they need to be maybe getting the government or recommending to the government that it fund repair sheds where workshops can occur, very similar to the men's uh, the men's sheds. Uh, so with Men of Australia, time is limited when we go to repair events um, and uh, we have to really get in and uh, fix the things that that uh, come into us. And uh, Danny, the co-founder of Mended Australia, he has electrical and mechanical skills. Now, not everyone is going to be comfortable um, learning how to do, uh, you know, electrical uh, appliance fixing. Uh, So he will explain what he's doing. He may ask for some help to hold some things, but we are not there teaching uh, other people might be. Other people come along and might be wanting to teach. Uh, and that's their prerogative. We're all volunteers after all. You know what? That's really interesting. And sorry, I just jumped over Dylan there. But um, this idea that, you know, when it comes to the practicalities of it, you're you're really proposing to set up this as a sort of an industry in Australia that we actually take it to that level. Is that what you're sort of saying, Karen? 
Yes, look, that that would be ideal. There are there are models of it happening. Uh, uh, there's the Bower Re- Resource and uh, Re- Reuse Centre in Marrickville in Sydney. Uh, that's a model that's uh, you know sort of what I'm talking about. There's the Edinburgh Remakery in Scotland uh, along similar lines. Where yeah, it's uh, it's either an industry um, or a not-for-profit or a charity uh, that permanently set up. It's not repair cafes happening in neighbourhoods once a month. We need more than that. They, it has to be, like the men's shed, uh, open daily and uh, activities uh, activities happening uh, all the time. Yeah, well, it's not to say that your microwave will, um, you know, decide to stop working to align perfectly with when the next repair cafe meeting happens to be. So I think the idea of having an ongoing um, kind of facility makes, makes a lot of sense. It's interesting to me hearing about this um, given the you know very strong sort of throwaway culture that we have these days but also coinciding with um, you know YouTube videos on the internet and, and internet forums that provide a whole lot of, of knowledge and know-how that, that a lot of people get something out of but I suppose what you don't get from that is the real life kind of interactivity watching someone who really knows their stuff um, uh, fixing it and being able to potentially ask questions as well do you see that as a really core part of the the um, repair repair it yourself movement yes Dylan spot on that's uh, what is so very very special about it and really what is I think the essence of its markability is that uh, connection you make over the table between the fixer uh, brings the item in and the item now if you're just getting the original equipment manufacturer sending it off via postage to, to fix it, if you can get that. Uh, there's um, between, you know, players. But over or in a repair setting, as you've just mentioned, Dylan, a repair cafe, community repair event, what happens is uh, that that item... Um, becomes more valuable, I guess, in the eyes of all. And uh, the effort that's gone into it, the care, uh, the expertise, the discussion over it, um, it's, it's just invaluable. You just can't replicate that anywhere else. That's that's, uh, that's the essence of uh, community repair special. And I'm going to, we're starting to lose your line there, uh, Karen, but I'm going to try and take a punt and hope that we can get an answer to another question. Um, just to loop back to the Productivity Commission's paper, and if people are interested in responding, um, it is on their website and you can do that uh, until sometime in July. So, you know, have a have, look that up. But just to go back to that, I mean, there are questions and I think around you know the right to repair things like medical equipment or vehicles or things like this where there's safety concerns and it sounds to me that um, the idea around expertise is something that that you would probably share there but I wonder with regards to other rights that the Productivity Commission is looking at um, and this idea that manufacturers of, of equipment should have a durability rating of some sort on them so people know how long they should expect something to last for and this idea of, of what they call sort of consumer super complaints where people can take um, you know cases forward in that way. Do you have thoughts around some of those other areas? Yes, look, uh, super complaints are uh, a good idea. 
works. I don't know. That's that's for the policymakers to uh, to figure out. But uh, a bit like a class action, not quite, but similar to a class action where a group of people get together and say we've got the same same complaint about a, a specific fridge and this is what's happening. Uh, it's a twenty dollar part that we can't uh, we can't buy. It doesn't exist. To fridge and so we have to uh, our you know what we've just lost your line completely and I'm sorry about that Karen um, thank you so much and look we, we really do need to get you back when we hear more about how these things um, progress and um, there, thanks so much for being with us on Triple R uh, there she is. <laughs> it's gone. I don't know what happened there. I'm um, Karen Ellis, Mend Australia. You can find them on Facebook and other platforms as well if you want to check out where they're operating and what they do. And of course, um, she mentioned repair cafes. They do exist and they're around the place. And we've spoken to people involved with those before. Uh, and uh, yeah, the Productivity Commission is the one that's trying to bring this forward in that sort of public discussion um, policy sense. And you can find out that they can find their right to repair paper on their website. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.